Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 92 called Amanda W. Okay guys, so I'm so excited to share my conversation today with Amanda, who is an absolutely incredible woman who's going to tell us all about her infertility struggles, including having a mother of her own who had infertility issues and how that affected her as she got older, also being blown off by a doctor at the age of 25, even though Amanda knew that there was something wrong and something was going on. She's going to talk about seven IUIs she went through, PCOS, IVF, and then we're going to talk about the devastating decision that they had to make to terminate her pregnancy at 19 weeks because her baby son had a myriad of health issues. And she's also going to talk about getting pregnant again. And now how at almost 32 weeks pregnant, she is still not fully able to relax. And so many of us know that feeling pregnancy after infertility, it just does not go away. So Finally, Amanda is going to tell us about her new site, which is called We Know, and it's a place where people can go to ask questions and crowdsource advice on everything from travel to food to parenting to pregnancy to infertility and all the things. So it's a great conversation. Thank you, Amanda, for sharing. And without further ado, this is Amanda's infertility story. Amanda, it's so good to talk to you. How are you today? Great. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to get into your story. We're going to talk about everything that you have going on. You've got this amazing new place, site, hub, information like juggernaut called We Know, and we'll get into all that. But let's start at the beginning with you. And you know, I always love to ask people if, if they always wanted to have kids. Did you grow up always wanting to be a mom? I, I did. I mean, I would definitely say that, and I, I have a younger sister who's five years younger than I am, and she was always kind of more maternal than I was, but having grown up in a very tight-knit family, having a family of my own was always important to me. And I also had a mother who struggled with infertility. Mm. And as the older child, I think she really relied on me to help her figure out how to communicate to my sister that she was conceived in a test tube. So it was always something on my mind that it may happen to me and that building a family doesn't always just come easily. Wow. So did you know at five, like what she was going through five and younger, I guess, because it probably took a while, right? Yeah, I didn't. I don't think I was aware of it then, but I do remember like a lot of my other, and, and you know, five years isn't a crazy time period, but I do remember other friends having siblings, and I had gotten quite used to being an only child. But I, I would say my mom probably started talking to me about it when I was around 15 or so. Okay. So what did she say? Did she have a diagnosis? No. Unexplained. Okay. okay. So did she say this is something you might need to look out for as you get older and start to try to have kids? It didn't come up so much like that. More so, we were, we've just always been very close. And I remember one day she sat me down and she said, I have to tell you something because I don't know how to tell your sister, but I had trouble conceiving her and she was conceived in a test tube and I don't want her to feel devastated like she's not my child. And, mm -hmm. and then I remember her just explaining to me how much of an impact infertility had on her life. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what did she end up telling your sister? 
she said to her that, you know, she wanted her so badly that it took a lot of time and effort and it was out of just an extreme want for her to be in our family and she should feel encouraged by the fact that she was conceived in a test suit rather than feeling any different than, than me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think it's a generational thing. Now IVF is so commonly talked about and, and so commonly used to treat infertility, but back then it was still new. So I think my mom was very worried that my sister would feel, you know, like a lesser part of her than I am, even right. though that's not true. Yes. Wow. That's so interesting. So, okay. Let's fast forward to your story. So what happened? Well, how did you meet your husband? First of all, Oh, I love, no one ever asks me this and it's actually quite funny. So, and it all is related. So I met my husband at a pool party in Las Vegas, totally randomly. He (laughs) was there for a work conference and stayed an extra day. And I Uh was like this 25th birthday party with 30 people. And I met him and we fell in love immediately. And it was truly, you know, out of a fairy tale. And we did long distance New York, LA for a year. And then he moved to New York. And it's funny you asked because that did really have an impact on my fertility journey because I was the first of my friends to even talk about getting married. Okay. And it was because of this like fast paced, long distance, like love affair that was happening cross country. So I feel like things just expedited really quickly. Yeah. Wait, tell me more about this party. I'm picturing like foam <laughs> and like all the things like yes. DJ craziness. Oh, yeah. What, where were you exactly in Vegas? We were at the Aria hotel. Okay. Exactly. As you described it, like right. I he makes fun of me because I, I strolled in wearing a bikini and high heels, which one would only do when they are 25 years old in Vegas. I um, love it. Actually, I think I was even younger. I think I was like 23 in Vegas. So, um, perfect. One and done moment for me, but that is how my husband first met me. So did you guys, did he go up to you? Did you go up to him or like, what was said? Oh my gosh. Actually, he went up to me and he's like, who wears heels at a pool party? And I totally blew him off and thought he was a loser. (laughs) And fast forward, he knew one of the people at the party I was at. And we had this like massive dinner that night. And he gave a toast to the birthday boy who he wasn't even that close with. And I remember thinking, wow, this guy's actually really cute and charismatic. And Uh I actually sort of chased him that night. So okay. <laughs> he never lets me live down, but then there was a lot of chasing me back. So it, right. it, he, yeah, I got him back. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So he moves to New York from LA and then you guys are together. Did you guys get married pretty soon after or what happened then? We got married a year later. Um, so I was 25 when I got married. And I think it was just because, you know, when you're committing to doing long distance and someone's moving cross country for you, it just it, it had to be taken very seriously mm-hmm. and it was. So it was just strange because none of my friends were in the same life place that I was in. Right. Okay. So then how long before you guys started talking about having kids pretty soon? So no, actually, but going back to how I started this, because my mom was very open with me about her fertility struggles, I decided to go off of birth control about a year after we got married Mm -hmm. um, or maybe even six months after we got married. And I remember like, he was like, we are not having kids yet. And I was like, no, definitely not. I just want to make sure everything is in check. And that's kind of what the OBs tell you to do as a first step. And Mm -hmm. I didn't get my period for a year. Okay. So I called up my OB and I said, what do I do about this? And she I, her words are forever burns in my memory. She said, 
you're young, you're fine. You don't even want a baby right now. This is common. Just ignore it and call me when you're ready to get pregnant. And that really sparked my realization that you have to be your own advocate because I was not fine. And having a child was incredibly difficult for me. And the fact that a doctor's instinct was to blow it off was very to me. I'm so glad you said that. Cause I think that's such a good lesson for people that are just starting out on this journey or like not really sure what they want to do is like the doctors aren't, I mean, doctors are amazing obviously, but they're not always the answer. They don't always tell you what needs to happen, you know? So you, you do have to advocate for yourself. You're exactly you right. Advocate and ask as many questions. And if something doesn't feel right, it might not be. And what worst case they investigate further and you're fine, but right. I get the answers. So did you get a second opinion or what did you do? I spent a little longer with this doctor and then she ultimately referred me to, I remember she called it a um, reproductive endocrinologist, not a fertility doctor, because I really wasn't at the time ready to have children. I know that sounds strange. I more so wanted to figure out what was wrong with me. But then once a doctor starts talking to you about, oh, maybe you have PCOS or you're not ovulating, we should look into it. Then suddenly you want a baby ASAP. Totally. It was like, I went from like, I've got like two years before I'm ready to, oh my God, I need a baby tomorrow. Yeah. And I started seeing this fertility doctor and for anyone else starting off, I would also say, do your research before choosing a fertility doctor, because Mm -hmm. this OB referred me to a doctor who did not take insurance And, you know, that's a personal decision, but I was not getting the service, any different service than I would have gotten or care from a doctor who did take insurance. And then I'll get into my story later, but when I ultimately was told that I had to do IVF, she didn't even do it. So I just, had I had the opportunity to redo things, I would have done a lot more research before signing up with a fertility doctor and I didn't interview anyway. I just picked the first one that my doctor sent me to. Right. Yeah. And I think that's common. You know, you kind of, you don't know any better. So it's like, well, yeah, if that's where I'm supposed to go, that's where I'm supposed to go. Okay. So what happened next? So then uh, she also said to me, you're young. I actually remember too. She said, this is going to be an easy one because they do the initial blood workup. They analyze your husband's sperm and everything with us looked literally perfect. Like Mm -hmm. I have, and I'm not saying this in a braggy way. So when you hear my story, you'll realize I've got every other issue in the book, but (laughs) I have eggs galore. The quality is amazing. Like, Uh no issues, nothing in my blood work. So she's like, this will be easy. Let's do like a few rounds of like medicated timed intercourse, nothing. All right, let's do some IUIs. And at this point I'm like three months in and I, again, I wasn't in a rush. So I was like, okay. She wound up putting me through seven rounds of failed IUIs. Wow. And I remember by the fifth one, I was like getting emotionally drained by just that office and anyone who's done an IUI knows how, honestly, I find it more invasive than IVF and it's, it's not, but it's just, there's something like icky about it. Like your mm-hmm. husband puts his sperm in the morning and they transport it. And then you see the sperm in a little vial and they shove it up you. It just feels, you it's feel weird. Like it, it is weird. And it's, it's so weird. Yeah. I went through seven of them and by the fourth and fifth, I was like, do I really have to keep doing this? And she's like, I really don't think you need IVF. So let's just keep trying. Yes. Had I done more research and spoke to more people, I would have realized like, "Mm, you probably don't need to do more than three. Yep. What was going on with like you and your husband? Had it affected your relationship? Were you feeling 
depressed or was it still like, okay, this is kind of step one. It's not too bad yet. Yeah, I, I think it was it was step one for me. And I think maybe because, again, I was in a different life phase than most of my friends. I had the benefit of not having that many people around me announcing pregnancies and trying to get pregnant. So because of that, I, I feel like we were both a little more patient with the process and it wasn't like dramatically eating us up yet. It was more just like the physical, like schlepping to the doctor's office and I had a busy job in finance and... By the way, the financial burden, because I was seeing a doctor that didn't take insurance. So like, right. you know, every IUI was a couple thousand dollars and we'd be like, oh my God, like there goes the trip we wanted to take. So it was more that than, and I have to say, like, I think it made us closer, mm-hmm. which I, I know it can put a lot of stress on a relationship, but it, it had the opposite effect on us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So when did you guys decide to move on to IVF or what happened after that? Did you, were you finally like no more IUIs? Yeah. I think I said it. She was like, we can try one more time. I'm like, I am not doing anything else. Okay. Fair. Like, I'm not doing this again. And mm-hmm. then she said, oh, well, I partner with NYU to do IVF. Like I don't do it. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. People do it? Okay. I'm like, okay, well they take insurance. So like, and again, it's not about the money. I just felt so um, like slighted. And I was like, okay, so like I do it through them. So I don't see you anymore. And she goes, no, no, no. Like I'm still your doctor. So I monitor the process for you, but like, you'll be going to them for ultrasounds and for the actual procedure. I was like, that makes absolutely no sense to me. So I decided then do my research. Uh huh. This is such a funny twist of fate. I wound up seeing the doctor that ultimately got my mom pregnant with my sister. Get out of here. Yeah. Oh my God. Was it just a coincidence or did you go to that person specifically? Um, you know, but my mom suggested it to me and I was like, mom, what? Like, I'm sure he's like older and like not still like a hot shot doctor. And she's like, no, he was super young when he was, he was starting his career when I saw him. And now I think he's like in the, literally in the prime of his career. Fast forward. He's like, I ended up seeing Dr. Griffo in New York, who is you know, I can't speak highly, more highly of him if I try. Like, I'm, I love him. He's an excellent doctor. And by no means is he this like old, slow doctor. So, yeah. That's um, so cool. Yeah. A few other people had recommended him to me. And then I was like, you know what? Like, I might as well meet with him. And I loved my consultation with him. And yeah, it just was, it just was meant to be. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, what happened when you guys first, when you went in for that consultation? I was just, I feel like my personality, maybe I'm just like a type A person. And so is my husband. We're very focused on results. So I, I really put the emotions aside at this point. And I was like, okay, tell me what I need to do. Tell me how long it's going to take and what the quickest path to success is. And Mm -hmm. he was totally on board for that strategy. He's like, we're not going to do any more IUIs. We're not going to do any more testing. I'm going to use all the tests that you've done and we're going to get you in, you know, the next month and let's go. And I was so excited to be doing something that actually like statistically had a much higher chance of working. IUIs, I think only increase your odds and I'm not a doctor. So it takes with a grain of salt, but I think it like increases your odds by like 10 or 20%, Mm -hmm. but IVF has like a 50 or 60% chance of working. Mm -hmm. So it's a much higher odds game. And I felt like I was finally taking action and not just like waiting on the sidelines. Completely. So did you start IVF right away? Right away. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how was that? I was really excited. You know, I've never been afraid of needles. So the shots really didn't bother me. 
I, like I said, the one problem I don't have is egg quality. So I had a little bit of hyper stimulation because I got so many eggs Mm -hmm. and that was like a little bit uncomfortable, but throughout that whole month, I was just so excited that in in my heart, I believed that I'd get a baby out of this. Right. Were you of the camp? Cause I was too, that it was like, I thought IVF was like a slam dunk. Like I was like, Oh, if you've got medical intervention, that's exactly the mindset that I was in. And I will say like, I think Dr. Griffo was pretty honest with me, but you believe what you want to believe. And in my head, I was like, Oh my God, I'm young. All my blood work is perfect. Like I am going to get pregnant next month. Is that Uh, what happened? So we ended up getting like 20 something embryos and then So we had so many extra embryos. So I decided to do a fresh transfer, even though my doctor told me not to Hmm. because NYU believes in genetically testing all the embryos before they transfer them. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know what? I don't want to waste any time. I have this month. I don't want to take a month off while I'm waiting for genetic test, you know, results. So let's just it. So we ended up doing a fresh transfer while the remaining embryos were being tested and that failed, but I wasn't crushed yet because they basically told me it would fail. They're like, you're so over-medicated. Like they were strongly against doing it. And again, I like had learned this lesson to be my own advocate. I'm like, I don't want to wait around. I'll blow an embryo. Let's do it. Okay. That didn't work. Then I ended up getting back the genetic results. And again, they're like, wow, your eggs are, your embryos are really healthy. Like, again, this is going to be easy. I ended up having 13, which unlucky number 13, I guess, mm. genetically tested embryos, which is like incredible. That is um, a lot. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be a breeze. I gear up for my FET and after doing a, an egg retrieval, an FET is like a joke. It's so easy, in my opinion, at least. Like you take a little bit of medication, but it's it's really so easy after coming out of a retrieval. Mm-hmm. And the day they implanted it, I was like, bam, I'm pregnant. I know I am. And I tested early. I did everything that they tell you not to do because I was just so confident it worked. And it did. It was the first time I had ever seen a positive te- like line on a pregnancy test. And I almost was not even like that excited when I took the test because I was just so confident going into it that it was like, of course it's going to be positive. Wow. And then we had planned to go visit my husband's family in California and I got on a plane. I must've been like four weeks, three days. I had just gotten my blood work back from NYU. Everything looked great. And we, a few days later, a few weeks, like a week later or so, we decided to go on a hike on Runyon Canyon. And I remember I was like, I do not feel well. And Jason was like, yeah, cause you're pregnant. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Like I am pregnant. Ha ha. <laughs> and then we got back to his parents' house and I started gushing blood. Oh God. So I, and, and the funny thing is, I was still so confident that this was my baby. So I called NYU and they're like, everyone bleeds in early pregnancy. I'm sure it's nothing. Like I I was like leaving the next day to come back to New York anyway. So like, you'll come in right, right after you get off the plane and we'll check it out, but it's nothing. Mm -hmm. And the bleeding just like picked up and picked up. So I also did what they tell you not to do. And I went to the ER mm-hmm. <laughs> in California and they, the doctors could not see anything on ultrasound, obviously. Now, now I understand why, because I was a day shy of six weeks. There's really not much to see at that point. Mm-hmm. And 
<laughs> after 12 hours in the ER, they're like, this is unconclusive. We like can't tell you if it's a miscarriage or not. And I remember being like, still like, yeah, it's not a miscarriage. Griff was oh off. You can't really like, like you could still bleed a lot and not miscarry. Cause I was just so, I was like, there's no way I'm losing this pregnancy. Yeah. Lo and behold, uh, the bleeding got really heavy. I had got really bad cramps. And that next day I just started to feel really defeated and I did fly home, went straight to their office off the plane, and they confirmed it was a miscarriage. Oh, so and sorry. That was when my bubble burst. And yeah. Confident, like, this is not that bad. This is, you know, I can get through this. That is when that mentality totally crumbled. Yes. So tell me about that. What was your mental state at that point? I just felt like, oh my God, maybe I can never have a child. Like, Mm -hmm. like, uh, like why, why would this not work? They can't find anything wrong with me. Maybe I'm just not meant to have kids. And I remember just feeling very depressed at that point and just sad. I think that was actually like the lowest I've ever felt on my fertility journey, despite future challenges ahead because it was like, you know, when you're like almost like when you're young and you're naive and you believe in the tooth fairy and then you realize it it doesn't exist. You know, it was like it was a really rude awakening that I just wasn't expecting. And it was exactly what you what you were saying. Like IVF doesn't always work. It's not always a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. And I in my head it just I I couldn't believe that. Right. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. So did you take some time to heal or were you like, let's try it again? So for me, trying again was my way of healing. However, Mm -hmm. my levels weren't dropping quickly enough because they were pretty high. And I was overly confident that like, I think literally the day I found out I was pregnant, which was at, you know, three weeks, four days or whatever it is, we had booked a baby moon because of after everything we went through, we're like, we're taking a big trip this summer. And that was set for, I believe, July. And this happened in April. Mm -hmm. And by May, my levels were still really high. I actually always forget this, but I actually ultimately ended up needing to get a DNC like maybe a month or two after the bleeding because there was a one millimeter piece of tissue stuck in my uterus. So my HCG was like stuck at four. So it was like a not even pregnant and it wasn't even a real DNC. It was just like, are you kidding me? Oh yeah. So I wasn't able to try before this trip. And a lot of people say this, and I'm just going to have to agree. I did end up taking a month off to go away. And I think my husband and I really needed that. And, you know, when you're in the middle of it, the last thing you want to hear is to take more time. And you're like, I don't need more time. I need results. I need a child. I need to get pregnant. And I, was very much a believer in that. But when I was forced to take this month off and clear my head and drink wine and laugh and not have to be like, you know, like, like every morning, is it day, you know, three days past five day transfer, four days past five day transfer, peeing on sticks. Like it really was a welcome break. And I think my body needed it. And I also think my mind needed it. Completely. You get on that hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get off sometimes. So you sometimes you have to force yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad that you guys had a good trip. Tell me what happened when you guys got back. 
then I was like, okay, game time. Game on. Four paints on my face. Let's go. And they did a transfer and that transfer resulted in my daughter, Scarlett. So someone also gave me this advice. So funny enough, I had, I miscarried in LA and then we had my sister-in-law's a big birthday party like three weeks later and I wasn't going to go. And then I felt really bad missing it, but I was still like traumatized. I was still bleeding. And I was like kind of traumatized by like just being there. But I I went because like, what are you going to like sit in a dark hole? And one of her friends, like I, I sat next to a dinner and I didn't know this girl and she somehow it came up what had just happened. And she had three kids and she said to me, listen, I had a miscarriage before my first child and I am so thankful for that miscarriage. And it's really hard in the moment to feel that way because if I didn't have that miscarriage, I wouldn't have my third child. It's like my, who I love, who I can't imagine my family without. Yeah. So that was like a really nice way to view a miscarriage. If you're a believer in what's meant to be, will be. And that's kind of exactly how I feel now looking back at my daughter, Scarlett. Like, had it not had any of those prior IUIs, you know, taken or the first two embryos I used, like, I may not have had her in my life. And I can't imagine a world without her. So completely. It's such a good way to look at it. It's, you know, shift in perspective. And she so how old is she now? I'm looking at your Instagram. She's so (laughs) cute. Thank you. She's two and a half and delicious and terrible and everything you want from a two and a half year old. Of course. This, there's a picture of her in like an avocado costume. It's oh, so, yeah. It's so cute. You had her. How was the pregnancy and delivery and all that? Ooh, my uh, saga continues of, you know, false expectations. But after I got pregnant, I was like, oh, my God, pregnant. Like the hard part is getting pregnant. Now that I'm pregnant, this is a breeze. So I was like that pregnant person who was like beaming and glowing and nothing could upset me. And I was eating croissants at 11 a.m. in the middle of New York City. And I was, you know, living my best life. People were like, are you uncomfortable? No, I love my belly. I really was that person. Yeah. Delivery wasn't so easy. But aside from that, like I had a breeze of a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So I'm very appreciative for that. Then my story got fun again. You know, I remember just being so happy to have Scarlett, but right when she turned one, a lot of my friends that I made who had similar age children were starting to get pregnant right away. And I said to my husband, like, hey, I know we're both really busy with work and our careers, but like, what if God forbid this takes me a really long time again? Let's just do it. And he was like, absolutely. Like, let's not waste any time. So I call up Griffo, we schedule it, we're both so excited. And I got pregnant on the first transfer. Mm-hmm. And that like never happened to me. So we like, you know, we're high-fiving, like, oh my God, our days of like issues are done. And in my head, I'm like, you know, getting pregnant's the hard part. Pregnancy is the easy part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, wrong. <laughs> so I found out that a few of my really close friends were also pregnant with me. And one girl actually had the same exact due date as me mm-hmm. um, in my close mom group. And that was really, really fun for like two weeks until I started gushing, gushing blood at six and a half weeks. Oh my God. Um, clots, like, you know, filling pads every three hours, like gushing. So I was like, Jason, I'm totally miscarrying again rush over to the doctor and lo and behold, I wasn't miscarrying. The baby was still there. There was a heartbeat. 
the heartbeat was really slow, which was kind of suggestive that a miscarriage could be happening. Mm-hmm. And I kind of braced myself. I'm like, okay, baby's still there, but like not looking good. They're like, come back in, I think it was like a few days. I went back, heartbeat was fine. I was mm-hmm. still eating, but the baby oddly had stopped growing. So they were still like, eh, maybe it's just like hard to get a measurement. There might be a weird shadow, but like a seven and a half week fetus, there's not a lot of margin for error. I, I, I learned later on, like the sizing, because they're not really reliant on you so much in the beginning. It's really just about blood flow. Like mm-hmm. they're all pretty much the same size. So there shouldn't mm-hmm. be a lot of dispersion. And my fetus was measuring a week behind. So they were like, okay, come back in another week and let's oh see if there's such an emotional roller coaster, though, right? So you're waiting and waiting, and of course, probably thinking the worst, or maybe you have moments of optimism. Oh, no, I was like convinced it was over. Convinced. Okay. <laughs> there was like zero optimism. I was actually more like, I just want to get it over with. Yeah. But then I kept going back, and they were like, actually, it looks fine. It would like grow just enough, and the heartbeat would be just strong enough, even though I was still bleeding, that they were like, this is fine. So by maybe 10 weeks, I was put on modified bed rest, still bleeding. Baby was growing on a fine trajectory, looked small, but not like, I think it was in like the 10th percentile. It wasn't like, you know, crazy, crazy small. And every, that every, and then then I did start to like, get my hopes up. Like, this is our child. Like, this is going to be fine. And every scan was just, I would hold my breath. I would like get emotional the morning of, I'm like not a spiritual person at all, but I would like kind of pray. Totally. Um, I would, you know, make my husband come to every appointment. Whereas with Scarlett, I was like, ah, go to work. Like I'm fine. Yes. And it would be like one good appointment followed by one bad appointment that would put us like 10 steps back. It was just, you know, bad nuchal scans bad measurements, but the doctors remained hopeful. But again, I went back to my original philosophy of needing to be your own advocate and something just didn't feel right to me. So I think I saw like seven doctors and I love and trust my OB and ultimately her advice. I ended, by the way, I should have mentioned, I actually ended up switching OBs when I got pregnant with Scarlett, just given how I felt a little like blown off by my first OB who told me that I wasn't going to have fertility issues. Right. And I, I'm obsessed with my new OB and her, you know, she wasn't ready to give up on the pregnancy in the early days, but she was very clear with me that something didn't feel right. And her instinct was correct at 20 weeks or actually at 19 weeks, we were given the devastating news that the fetus had lost kidney function. So it was now tracking, I think, 10 days behind and the kidney function had gone out. And then I had weird blood markers in the nuchal scan. So in my doctor's words, I had no, um, what did she say? She had, she said, you have too many parking violations. Mm -hmm. You didn't get a 90 mile per hour speeding ticket, but if you rack up all of these parking violations, it really doesn't look good. So it wasn't necessarily like one dramatic thing that made the pregnancy bad, but it was the combination of of bizarre blood work and now kidney failure that three doctors that I spoke to felt that it wasn't a viable pregnancy. And at this point, I'm at the 19-week mark. By the way, I should mention that I had done an amnia or I did a CVS test and I had gotten the results back two or three weeks prior and everything looked great. 
So I had, of course, just announced on Instagram at 18 weeks that we were expecting a baby boy in April because things seemed to be taking a turn for the better. And then when we found out there was no kidney function, the doctors kind of felt that, you know, if there's no blood flow to the kidneys, the brain probably didn't get enough blood flow and other organs could be affected and just not able to be seen yet on ultrasound. Yeah. So I decided without even blinking twice, I said, okay, how do I terminate? I'm so sorry. Thank you. And it was, it was really terrible, especially when, and, and, and I feel like I keep hearing of stories now of people trying to get pregnant when friends around them are pregnant. And I never had to go through that because I wasn't trying alongside my friends, but in that moment, I I felt what all of those people feel because my friends were all having healthy pregnancies around me. We had the same size belly, but I was losing mine. Yeah. And it was just devastating to think about. But I I, I knew at that point what I had to do. And I had almost been like prepping for that moment since six weeks when something didn't feel right. Between six weeks and 18 weeks or 19. I mean, that's a long time to be thinking this probably isn't going to work out. Yeah. It was. And that's why um, I talk a lot about this. But for me, when I made that decision, I felt immediate relief. And I hear a lot of stories. I think the more common way people express this is by by feeling very empty and alone and sad. And then, then you start the path to recovery. My path to recovery almost was going on throughout the, the however many weeks that was. And it almost ended when I aborted the pregnancy. I felt like I could restart after that. It was horrible, but it was almost like when I, and I can talk a little bit about what happened, but after that procedure, I was like, okay, I'm keeping that in the past. I don't want to relive it. I don't want to think about it. I want to move on. I'll spare people the really sad details, but it's just a terrible process. Like, and they're really, I found, and this is part of the reason why I built the platform that I'll talk about later, because I had very little resources because it's not as common to figure out like, what is the actual process? What's the procedure for doing something like this? It sounds terrible, but like physically, what does it mean for a woman? Right. And I had no one to, to tell me. And that was the hardest part. Um, and it's terrible. They It takes a week from when they give you this news and you say yes to when it can actually be scheduled. Most times your OB, who you really trust at this point, likely can't do it. So I had to have like a specialist come in and do it. Mm -hmm. By the way, is an incredible person. Like the fact that she chose that as her career, like she basically does these all day, every day. And she's a like female activist. Like it's, it's actually incredible, but that was devastating. And then I didn't realize this, but they literally put you in labor Mm -hmm. one or two days before to dilate your cervix (laughs) so they could fit the tools that they need to get up there and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I had <laughs> as dramatic an experience. I had a more dramatic experience terminating this pregnancy than I did delivering Scarlet. They give you these like dilators and you're cramping and you're basically in labor at home. And they're like, oh yeah. And like very rare instances, your water will break. Well, guess what? My water exploded in the kitchen. <laughs> and this was the night before they were, they were operating on me. I was set to go into the hospital in the morning and I called the doctor and she's like, you need to get to the hospital now in case this baby comes in the next two hours. So I rushed to the hospital. And of course, 
They don't have a private room for me. So I'm literally sitting in a closet on a gurney behind the recovery room for the C-sections. Oh, no. So all night, my husband and I are sitting there. I'm being monitored. And I'm just hearing babies crying. Ugh. It was terrible. That's complete hell. It was terrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. And I think that's why when this was all over, I was like, you know what? That is going to be my low point. I am not going to allow another low point. That was it. It's only up from here. And I really did take as positive of an approach as you could possibly take because I would not allow myself to feel worse than I did that night. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. Thank you. It was not fun. But, you know, sounds cheesy, but it does make you stronger and appreciate what you have in life. Completely. My daughter, they made me stay in the hospital an extra night, and my daughter came burst into my room and visited me the next day. And I just realized like, and I I was lucky that this happened with my second child, not my first, because I was connected with someone and she had the same exact experience that I had, but it was with her first. But for me, I looked at Scarlett and I was like, I can do this. You can do this. You are going to get, you know, war paint back on and you're right. So, and that's what I did. Okay. So then did you wait a while to kind of recover from that? I mean, your body has been through a ton at that yeah. point. So the, you, the the listeners on this podcast might make fun of me after this because I say, be your own advocate, be your own advocate, be your own advocate. But you actually do have to listen to doctors because I think in this <laughs> next little bout that I'm going to tell you and my saga is almost over, but I think I was a little bit too much of my own advocate. So they tell you to wait three to six months before you could try again. And when you hear all I could focus on was six months. Like I cannot wait six months to try. Yeah, it's like an eternity. No. They told me six months and I was like, no way are you making me wait six months. And then I like do my own like Googling and baby centering. And I'm like, yeah, I speak to a few people. I'm like, yeah, you would get pregnant in three months after this. Like, yeah, you just have to like, you know, make sure your levels drop. So I was psycho and I made them monitor my levels every week. And mm-hmm. My levels did drop really quickly. They insisted you get at least one period before you try again. But I was like, Dr. Griffo, or not Griffo, his team, I won't put the blame on him. I'm like, I have PCOS. I don't get periods. It's been three months. Let's go. Yeah. And, you know, in hindsight, I probably should have waited until I got a period because after Scarlet, I did start getting periods, not regularly, but I did get them. But I was so impatient that I was like, it could take me eight months to get a period. I'm not waiting. And I have totally. PCOS. I'm not even supposed to get a period. So let's go. And they listened to me. <laughs> and at five weeks, I got pregnant. I was like, hallelujah, this is it. So wait, did you do a transfer or you got pregnant naturally? Yeah, right. <laughs> I did a chance. Okay. I was say. <laughs> that would be such a cool end it's, to this. Story. No, it's not. An, I've, t- I've interviewed so many people and, you know, sometimes that does happen. No, but never to me. Maybe yeah, one. never. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day though. I stay hopeful. But anyway, so I do a transfer. I get pregnant. I'm like, yes, I'm pregnant again. I can finally like really move on. Actually, my goal was to be pregnant before my due date. And I think I, for some reason, put this pressure on myself. So my due date was in April. So I did a transfer, I believe, in February, mm-hmm. early February. And I was like, perfect. I'm going to be pregnant by April. I can even start to tell people then because I'll be almost 12 weeks. Like, or maybe it was end of, yeah, I think it was, it must have been, yeah, February. And at five weeks, I broke out in the craziest hives you've ever seen. Whoa. 
Yeah. Like no clue why uh-huh. I rushed to my dermatologist. I'm like, I have bed bugs. She's like, you don't have bed bugs. You have hives rushed to Griffo's office. They're like, yeah, no baby looks totally fine. I was like, all right, fine. Um, they're like, just take some Benadryl. So I'm like zonked out on Benadryl for three days straight. My husband goes on like a ski trip with his friends and then bam, a day shy of six weeks, which is exactly when I miscarried before Scarlett, I start gushing blood again. Oh my God. And I didn't want to, my husband was coming home the next day. So I didn't want to like really upset him. Like, what was the point? And I just remember calling up my mom and saying, she didn't even know I was doing a transfer. Like I told nobody. And I remember just saying, what the fuck? Like, I can't fucking take it anymore. I'm over this. I'm over trying to have a baby. Like this is too hard. Mm -hmm. And I lost it and just like hysterically cried for like six hours straight. Mm -hmm. Been there. (laughs) And then COVID happened. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. So that was this. That was this year that, that, that... yeah, that was just in February. Um, I was gearing up to do another transfer in March and then COVID happened. Yeah. And at first I was devastated, but then I kind of thought back to my first experience with Scarlett and I was like, you know what? It will be what it will be. And I actually did think maybe I'll get pregnant naturally. Like how fun would that be? But I I said to myself, you know what? You need a break. Just, Mm -hmm. just, just go with it and take time and drink wine and, you know, enjoy this like bizarre time with family. Right. And I did. And I actually got my period three months in a row or two months in a row. Uh And it never happened to me like on time. And I was like, oh my God, I like felt healed. I felt fixed. It was very strange. Yes. Was this like, even though COVID was such a stressful time, there was something really relaxing about not having to go anywhere, no social pressures, no you know, just literally being home with my family. And it it oddly like put my body back on track. Yes. I've heard a lot of people say that who are going through this, that it was like nice to kind of just slow the fuck down for a minute. Yeah. I think we all needed it. Yeah. Um, And then Griffo is a saint and they let me, I think I was literally the first person that they allowed to come in in May. It was either April or May to do a transfer right when they decided to reopen the clinic. And here I am seven months later getting uh-huh. ready for the baby. So <laughs> this is so wild. So you're, are you 30 weeks right now? 30 weeks. Oh my gosh. Amanda, this is crazy. It's yeah. so awesome. And how do you feel? You know, physically, I feel great. I feel the best I've ever felt pregnant, but emotionally I'm okay. I'm a little scarred by my past. Totally. So I feel like I won't really breathe until it's over. Um, yeah. I'm like, you know, now I have to get through a C-section. Like, so I'm like, I'm like, oh, pray that I don't have a complication with that. I'm like, just, I'm, I'm exhausted from the complications. I had a few red flags with this pregnancy, nothing crazy, but there was like a slight concern of a placental issue. So she said the chance of me being able to do a VBAC is so slim that it's just safer to be in a controlled environment. It was interesting. You said in your Instagram post, one of them was like, it's crazy how two pregnancies can look the same on the outside, but feel so different on the inside. And I think that's such an interesting and valid point, like after loss and after all that you've been through, you know, you're, you're feeling probably nervous. 
Yeah. And I almost um, erase it from my mind. Like I have friends, like I'll FaceTime people like, oh my God, your belly, it's so cute. And I'm like, I like change the subject. I'm like, don't even talk to me about it. Like yeah. don't say the P word around me. Don't talk about baby. Like I'm just mentally not there. Like I just yeah. won't fit until I have it, I guess. Yeah. That makes total sense. I hear Scarlett, I think in the background, right? <laughs> There she is. Well, listen, before we, first of all, congratulations. Thank you for sharing all of that, all of the ups and downs. And I know your story is not over yet, but I would love to talk about We Know, which is, like I said, at the top of the show, what you've created. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I think throughout all of my journeys, I would say there have been multiple. I I felt really isolated. And I, what I really needed in all of those moments were real people to talk to, not doctors. Doctors are great. You need them too. But I had no shortage of doctors to talk to. What I couldn't find were real people like me who were experiencing things like me. Yeah. And, And then on top of that, I've run an Instagram account for the past, I don't know, seven years or so. And I felt discouraged from sharing with my audience how I felt and what I was going through in live time because I never had the right visual images or videos to go along with the content I wanted to share. So I realized that there's this big gap in the market of social media because everything today is pretty visual. And I felt that there's a real need for people to be able to connect in a digital social way based on advice. Mm -hmm. So we know as a platform where you connect with your friends, just as you do on all these other social platforms, Mm -hmm. but instead of connecting on photos, videos, or even like LinkedIn is like, you know, career stuff, you're just connecting on the basis of advice. And the goal is that people can find people in their first and second degree networks, which I think is really important to connect on shared, you know, interests, whether it be really sensitive things like what I went through or even just like basic things like, don't you want to know how your friends are sleep training or how to stop your kid from throwing food on the floor? Yeah. Um, Sometimes you just want to hear from your friends. Totally. So I'm trying to create a safe place to share and talk that isn't so reliant on the need for images because I think a lot of people are discouraged today from sharing when they don't have provocative images to share on Instagram or, or feel comfortable doing that. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Amanda. Definitely check out We Know, her new site where everybody can share advice and glean information. I'm going to link to it in my Instagram, which is at infertileafstories. I also wanted to remind you guys that if you are looking for a place for support, definitely check out fertilityrally.com. And finally, if you don't mind rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it on Apple or Stitcher or Spotify. It really helps us get noticed and it helps these stories go out to even more thousands of people. So thanks again. And I'll talk to you guys next time.